0: Welcome to another episode of Inside the Hive. I'm Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello. Hello.
1: Emily.
0: I have a question. Where is Joe Biden? Where is he? Have you seen him?
1: Uh, I think I've seen him. In, I mean, I know I've seen him in a in a basement with with some yeah. very large book bookcases. So I think he's like just lives in the basement now. Is that right?
0: I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, maybe he doesn't have much choice. He is among the vulnerable. Uh, citizens, you know, given his age. um, You know, we don't expect him to be out on the hustings right now. But, uh, you know, there is a presidential election going on. In some cases, you might not think there is one going on. Of course, it's like the subplot to this much larger pandemic plot that we're all in. And to some degree, that's understandable. But uh, you're also looking at what's going on and you're asking yourself, why isn't there a strong counter voice just sort of in the media every day, uh, you know, sucking up some of the oxygen that Trump usually is getting and being a voice for uh, Democrats in a way that they can feel um, confident about? Everybody's looking for that to happen. And so my question keeps being is Joe Biden um is this a strategy you know is he doing, is this the rope a dope as they say you just sort of lean back and let Trump punch himself out by saying absurd things you know that abs- saying absurd things has never really fully hurt him on some level but maybe there is starting to be damage because people are really scared right now but and and you and I've spoken a little bit about this in the past i mean is he uh, you think this is a bad idea right for him to just uh, disappear
1: <laughs> well sure because there is actually a presidential election that will maybe happen in November and I want to talk about that but I I can't think of an argument for just disappearing in the middle of a presidential election I think that people need to hear the alternative I don't think that that necessarily means uh, letting the president hang himself is a bad idea. I think that he's doing a good job of that every day. I don't think that matters to to the core group of people who would have voted for him anyway and, and that he's going to need for re-election. I think that they like seeing him talk every day the way that they are familiar with him talking. But the problem with the with the election in November for Joe Biden was always going to be enthusiasm, was always going to be turnout. For any, any Democratic candidate, the key particularly in the swing states, was who are we going to have on on the opposite end of the ticket from President Donald Trump who is going to inspire and excite and energize enough people to turn out that Tuesday in November in order to – to make a difference, to change those states that went for Trump in 2016 and make them blue. And I don't think you get that enthusiasm by just disappearing for six months. I know you don't get that enthusiasm by by disappearing for six months. You can't just have a, well, let's let the crazy guy talk and, and potentially turn people off without offering them a strong alternative. I just don't see that happening. Now, there's a greater question about whether or not we're going to be able to vote, period, in November. Can you imagine... Getting up and going into your car and driving to a polling station that you know is going to be crowded, where you know you're going to have to touch something that hopefully a lot of people have touched that day because you want a lot of people voting, and you're going to interact with people. You're going to hand them your ID to, to prove you are who you, who you say you are. You're going to then get that ID back. You're going to then touch a little screen, and then you're going to go back in your car, and then you're going to go home. That idea seems crazy.
0: Right. And And we don't have an
1: alternative. Most states, you cannot vote early. You cannot vote by mail. You can't vote absentee without a real reason. And we're running out of time to make that so. And I don't know if there is even time to make that so. And I don't know that there is a strong will, particularly in Republican-led states, to make that so because traditionally... If you have vote by mail, that opens up the opportunity for people who usually lean Democratic to vote, people who can't get out in the middle of the day to go to their polling places or uh, younger people who maybe don't still live in state. They're they're going to college. Uh, It opens up the electorate in a way that tends to favor Democrats. And so there isn't a lot of excitement or enthusiasm from the Republican-led states to make that the case. It won't do well for them electorally. So. I don't know what's going to happen in November if there is even a feasible way for us to have a large swath of the American electorate turn up to the polls. But if there is, I don't know that they're going to do it for Joe Biden because he is just a missing person.
0: Well, let me just make a, uh, uh, you know, for the sake of argument. Let's hear it. You know, one of the things that I think we're seeing right now is the corona, you know, the election is not on top of mind for lots of people right now. It's like the background noise to, you know, fear for their life, fear for their jobs, fear. And I think the battleground of the election is completely transforming, of course, that, you know, the, the actual, I'm not talking about battleground states. I'm talking about the issues that are going to shape it are still working themselves out, you know, and they're going to over the next couple of months and you're starting to see you know, here's Trump saying, OK, Americans, you're warriors, quote unquote. You're warriors in the battle against this invisible enemy. And so go out there and risk your life. I've drafted you, you know, into, you know, my own uh, ward that I've created against this virus. And you're going to go out and do this. So that's the sort of libertarian, you know, the Republican side is that's the fight we're going to have. And so the left is going to have to figure out what it's sort of, a uh, you know, on the one hand a critique of trump's handling of this right but also is it going to push the democrats towards the bernie sanders you know we need to have more of a safety net for people maybe there's some talk of universal income to keep people going during this time and you're you're going to see the the polls are going to uh, you know the pol- polarization is going to get more intense over this and the question is whether biden can kind of absorb the message uh, uh that the democrats need to have and be the vehicle for it and maybe he's in some you know to bring us back to the star wars metaphor brad parscale the campaign manager was tweeting this morning and he had a picture of the death star from star wars saying we're coming for you joe biden we have this incredible you know we got money we got this huge digital digital operation so where's joe biden you know by the way into- what a
1: weird i don't know that
0: I mean I, I know, know I no. have
1: not seen this this Star Wars movies but I know yes. what happens at the end of the movie. I feel like maybe Brad Parscale yes. who's running the campaign has not seen the end he, of the
0: movie. He's not paying attention to the end of Star Wars a New Hope where the Death Star is blown up by young Luke Skywalker. So sure. that he in this metaphor we're going to have, you know, Joe Biden is like uh training to be a Jedi in a, in his basement, right? Um kind of gets a little uh wonky there, but um you know, so this divided Democrat thing is uh, problematic. I, I was thinking, we're thinking about the Tara Reid allegation that's come up and how Joe mm-hmm. Biden has handled it. You know, he was a little flat footed dealing with it, or he took some time to deal with it, and he was criticized for doing so. Um, and the Democrats are working themselves into circles because they, you know, want to hold a standard to people like Brett Kavanaugh, as they did couple of years ago, but now they're being asked to do it to Joe Biden. Um, Maureen Dowd wrote over the weekend, um, Democrats always set standards that come back to bite them. They have created a cage of their own making. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of this TV show I've been watching, Mrs. America. I don't know if you've seen that out there. It's I haven't got seen it manchette. yet. It's on the, oh, it's, it's in the queue. It's so great. I highly recommend it. And um, Tracy Ullman is bet, uh, Betty Friedan, uh, you know, author of mm. The Feminine Mystique, is absolutely incredible. She's so good. Um, but uh, it really takes you back into uh, the, Election 72, where it's McGovern uh, versus Nixon, which there are some parallels to today where you've got, uh, you know, real divisions inside the party over how to handle it. And you realize this has been the case with Democrats (laughs) since the beginning of time is that Mm -hmm. they are always like, you know, making it worse for themselves because they have a more kind of divided, uh, you know, um, groups uh, uh, under the umbrella. But um, this is like, uh, you know. I think right now our version of that is Joe Biden has to figure out how to keep um, progressive uh, feminists on his side, the Bernie Sanders people on his side, and also, you know, kind of uh, project uh, some kind of um, uh, authority over the Democratic Party, because there's no real voice of leadership right now. Well, there's also no
1: place to get that voice through. I think you're totally right about the trouble he's going to have coming up with one message that speaks to a very fractured Democratic Party and and a Democratic Party that really lives on on two ends of a spectrum and and then has people all the way in between. That's going to be really hard to to unify that message but I think it's going to be even harder to figure out a way to really get that message across not just to Democrats but to there are a lot of vulnerable people vulnerable former Trump supporters or people who supported Trump in the last election who may be ripe for the taking people who when this kind of economy that I think will exist in the fall does exist People are going to be hankering for a change. They're going to be desperate for a change. And so this is the exact kind of election where you could have a real big swing in places that were firmly Trump territory if the economy uh, does continue to slide as as many and most experts continue uh, think it will continue to do. But if you have Joe Biden's only tool in his tool- toolbox is to do Zoom rallies from his basement, yeah. Is that really an effective way to get your message across, particularly in such a divided, paranoid environment? No, I think I think no. it's gonna be really tricky. And I think that we saw that a little bit last week with his interview on Morning Joe. I think that it's always shocking to me when you have a presidential candidate. And I thought I felt this way with Bloomberg, too, where, you know, exactly what you're going to be asked. Right. Like you're yeah. going on. National television with very right. hard interviewers, and you know exactly the questions that are coming your way. And so, when you're caught seemingly off guard by what they ask you, it makes me wonder. I I, I know that they had people prepping them, right? I know that he right. has very skilled people working on his campaign, and there's no world in which they didn't know exactly what kind of questions Joe Biden was going to get that morning and so it's a question to me of like did he just not think he had to prep because he feels like he didn't do anything wrong and so if you don't do anything wrong why should you just ha- why should you have to prep you just tell the truth I-, I don't know if that's the case I don't know if he just is not on top of his game and so he never sounds like he's prepped properly but it was was pretty amazing to me to see his response to the Tara Reed stuff last week I-, I think that he was very clear in the fact that he doesn't believe that he did something that was inappropriate or wrong. Uh, but when he was initially asked about whether or not they should go through the Senate papers, there was a little bit of a hesitation. Like he didn't expect that to come his way, which is its own issue. I'm wondering, I know that you have an interview coming up and I can't wait to hear it with Rebecca Traster, who is, uh, I feel like the exact person I'd want to hear from on this issue. What accounts for that kind of, flat footedness in this response and and what do you think people needed to hear from him do you think that that it was satisfactory
0: well that's the interesting thing that we come around to on this uh interview is that she uh you know it's less about like whether tara reed is right or whether he's right it's about his response to it and her big uh, criticism is that uh he has used other female democrats as cover you know he's got Uh, Stacey Abrams from Georgia, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, they're all coming out saying, I believe Joe Biden, and she believes that they are sort of setting themselves up for potentially having, you know, damaging themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And that he, so she's going to talk about that in this interview. Um, You know, we're all kind of um, uh, trying to learn uh, new things while we're in quarantine, you know, Joe Biden's going to have to learn how to uh, not only address this stuff, but campaign um in this environment he's going to have to master these new technologies he's going to have to break through you know he needs to get on tiktok and do some tiktok dancing or whatever he's got to wait are you out. learning
1: tiktok dancing i feel like you told me I, we're learning I, have TikTok TikTok
0: t- I have tiktok dancers in my home and i'm very exposed to they're your children let's be clear let's be clear they're my children yeah it's not my <laughs> dog uh and it's not me um but um So let me just make very clear, you're about to hear from Rebecca Traister, who is the author of a book called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. She writes for The Cut at New York Magazine. I've known her for maybe 17 years or so. We used to be young reporters together at the New York Observer, which later uh, was owned by uh, none other than uh, Jared Kushner. Our guy. Let's not talk about him. Let's, no, let's not do it. Jared Kushner, please. the world. It's going to drive drive me insane. So let's listen to this interview. I think uh, she's so smart. She gets very impassioned, as you'll hear. And uh, we're right, right on top of the conversation about what's going on with Joe Biden and the terror read allegation. Let's go listen right now. We have known each other for, I calculated, 17 years-ish.
2: That sounds, or that sounds have, right.
0: Yeah, a lot has happened since then. And I was reading your uh, book last night, and good and mad. What was the publication date on that, by the way? When did that come out what year?
2: It came out well, I can tell you, uh, it came out the first week of October in 2018, and to tell you exactly where that was, yeah. uh, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony and Brett Kavanaugh's testimony was, I believe, on a Thursday, and the oh, book wow. came out the next Tuesday which, of course, was uh, entirely accidental <laughs> uh, and That's incredible. But it came out in that week between the testimony and the ultimate, and the, you know, sort of sham investigation of her claims, and then the vote came the next weekend.
0: That's incredible. I mean, the, the um, you were in the zeitgeist, like a heat-seeking missile there. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking a lot about—your book's really— amazing, and there's all this incredible historical information that I didn't know um, about, you. you know, the history of, of women and uh, in politics in America, especially I was reading about the, um, uh, was it Fannie Lou, uh, is it Hamer? Fannie Lou Hamer, who, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who was going to, you know, give a speech at the DNC in 1968 about uh, being sort of beaten while trying to uh, get out the vote in Mississippi and, uh, you know, fearing that her kind of anger and radicalism might uh, alienate Democrats. LBJ has a kind of press conference about the anniversary of JFK's death to kind of eclipse that. I mean, just little facts like that. Just to
2: point out how ludicrous it was and what a sham news conference that was, it wasn't even the anniversary of JFK's death. death. It was the nine-month anniversary. He entirely fabricated a reason to have a television news conference to right. draw cameras because when the president called it, it had to draw cameras away from Fannie Lou Hamer's speech about being badly beaten attempting to vote. And it is such a remarkable example of of how perilous to a system it is to actually let the furious, the fully furious voices of women be heard and make calls to, to furious action.
0: Right. Well, it it almost seemed and we'll get to this later, like a something a scene from Mrs. America, right? This T V show oh, I've about been the
2: thinking I have been thinking an awful lot as I've been watching Mrs. America. There's a lot in Mrs. America that I actually write about in my book.
0: Right. Well I I noted that. And <laughs> you know, especially the 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 McGovern, you know, campaign and Shirley Chisholm and I mean, who ran for president as the first black woman to ever run for president and Kind of an amazing historical, you know. This TV show takes you more or less into that. So, and we'll get to that, and we'll also get in a moment to you know the the current of aff- affairs, you know, Joe Joe Biden and Tara Reid and which interesting echoes in that TV show also about mm-hmm. where the Democratic Party is right now and its sort of divisions. Um, mm-hmm. But I want I want to uh, first start by just. Thinking a little, drawing back for a minute and thinking about where we've come in the last few years since Trump has been president um, with the Me Too movement, um, the Believe Women movement, all of the kind of, um, the, the, the rise in the progressive feminist voice in this country. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about how, where I was on November 9th, 2016, leap forward not i don't know was it two months later was that the was the first women's march in january right it was in um, it was january
2: 20th or 21st of of yeah it was two boy those were some long months um yes it was a couple months later yeah
0: yeah they were long months and that was sort of the you know the groundswell of the anger that you write about you know uh Mm -hmm. kind of finding its voice in this modern times and um That was uh, the beginning of all these movements that we've seen take all these sort of circuitous paths, um, you know, from Harvey Weinstein being convicted to the, you know, the Brett Kavanaugh case, which is um, now back in the news because it's now become, you know, kind of a a test case for judging the Democrats for their own, uh, you know, using that as a, a kind of... Uh, you know, a test for how, how if you're going to judge uh, him that way in the media, then Biden must also be judged by that um, level of inquiry and, and so forth. Um, you know, the. Maybe a lot was it last week that, um, you know, you wrote a, a wonderful profile of St- Stacey Abrams for New York Magazine mm. um, mm-hmm. last year. And I know you had a lot of admiration for her. You probably still do. She's a rising, um, you know, hope in the Democratic Party. Um, she got completely shafted in Georgia, um, and but she has sided with Joe Biden in this recent, um, you know, case with Tara Reid. Tara Reid has come along and made these allegations uh, in recent months. My own personal experience: the first time I ever heard of it was it was popping up a month and a half ago with some Bernie, in the Bernie sphere, right? In, mm-hmm. the, in the Bernie Sanders Twitter sphere. And my first kind of um, uh, not knowing much about it, you know, just striking me immediately, I thought, oh, this, I don't know if I trust this, right? This seems like uh, a Scud missile sent up by the Bernie people to take out Biden. And it immediately in my mind, I kind of framed it as potentially like a closer to, you know, Julie Swetnick than, than you know, Christine Blasey Ford. I, I didn't know what to make of it, but I thought, is this going to rise up into the mainstream media and become a thing and become analyzed, or is it some kind of crazy town thing? You never know, right, mm-hmm. in, these, in the political world. And so it is. when it started to reemerge, I read your column in the cut, and I thought, oh, this is about to really happen. That was the signal yeah. to me. Um, mm. and, and I, and then, when I saw Stacey Abrams, uh, come out to defend Biden or to say she believed him. And I wondered what that moment was like for you, because, you know, reading your column, you know, I got the sense that, you know, no matter what might have happened, uh, that it's something that Joe Biden has to contend with. And on some level, he may already be damaged by it.
2: Oh, boy. So this is a really complicated question. Um, I, know. <laughs> I know. So here's the deal, and and I'm actually going to take something you said a few minutes ago and go back to to sort of underscore a point I'm about to make about how complex and often circular this process is. So you right. said, you know, it was after the Women's March that this movement really started. And I would actually... Um, disagree with that and say that so much of the energy that we saw channeled in many different ways, the Women's March was obviously a massive and sort of traditional public event in which millions of people around the world, on all continents, I mean, it was just an extraordinary one-day political, social um, protest, the biggest single day protest in the country's history. But that was just one that was an event that was a mass signal. And it was happening sort of in advance of the hashtag Me Too movement, in advance of sort of political organizing around state and local elections, the the historic number of women running for office in the twenty eighteen midterms, the, the Fast food workers' strikes, the teacher strikes that began to roll through the country, the tech, some of the tech strikes, things striking in in response to low wages and poor working conditions, and also, uh, you know, sexual harassment, um, and and all those co- types of fury and impulse toward p- protest and resistance have their roots in things that had started even before Trump's election. If you look back sure. at the sort of um, emergent protests, certainly Black Lives Matter, the Occupy movement, walks, the um, Dakota Pipeline protests, if you look at all of those movements, you are actually going to find women angry at the beginning of them, right? But right. when mm-hmm. all of those, any movement is going to contend, any movement against powerful systems, and of course, looking at that, you're looking at broken economic systems, broken racial systems, policing systems, you um, Uh, you know, gender norms, any protest movement that is against a massive system is going to encounter massive structural resistance, right? This is the reason that they don't all just work in a blink of an eye, right? That they take decades, they take centuries. Stacey Abrams herself has been in the midst for for years before her own gubernatorial run in 2018, um, a race that, you know, she arguably lost thanks to voter suppression. Abrams had been working in Georgia to enfranchise voters. That's a process that I write in my book. The process of enfranchising Americans has been ongoing. The battle to fight against voter suppression and to actually get people um, registered to vote and participating in our democracy has been ongoing for our country's whole history, two and a half centuries, and it's still very much in process, as we know. Um, these things are long battles, and they're battles in part because systems are, are very effective um, at quelling this kind of um, impulse and push toward change. And so part of what we're talking about when we talk about something like what's going on with Joe Biden, it's a very specific story, but it's bringing to bear all of these mechanisms that abusive systems have going for them to, you know, halt movements in their tracks, to quash right. protest, to turn people who might be on the same side against each other
0: may i just say that i mean biden was um elected uh -hmm. or not he's he 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 got this he hasn't been elected to anything but he was his his nomination to the democratic party happened through just voters you know they saw what they saw and that's that's, i mean how is that structural
2: right so well this is a really important this is a really important part okay so There has been feminist, and I am—I'm somebody who gave voice to it. I, you know, I am a—I am a left-leaning feminist voter, right? And I, I, going into this election when there were many choices, Joe Biden was my least favorite one, and I wrote about that in New York Magazine at great length about a year Mm -hmm. ago, and I cited a whole litany of feminist reasons why he was not my first choice, right, including a history of not the uh, kind of assault that Tara Reid is describing now but um, sort of inappropriate touching, disregard, the treatment of women as, you know, property and objects and sexualized... And by the
0: way, Tara Tara Reid was a part of that litany of women coming forward at the time. Yes, a year ago. Yes,
2: Yes, exactly. The first uh, version of the story that she told was very much in line with the story that several other women, I believe six other women, told um, in the spring of 2019 about sort of touching of neck and head and inappropriate kissing and mm-hmm. smelling of the hair stuff biden had done that was it didn't fall into the category of violent sexual assault at all but did fall into the category of a kind of uh you know borderline harassment Gr- patriarchal proprietary mm-hmm. objectifying treatment of women
0: grody, grody is, old man
2: grody old man bingo yeah, right? I,
0: I, I get it i get it but let me ask you 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 know setting aside that and maybe they don't Maybe they go together, but his policies overall and his sort of, you know, centrist, you know, old, you know, old coke Democrat, you were as much against the whole package as yeah. you were just this slice of his oh, yes. behavior right no, i was against um, i was
2: not a joe biden fan i was for the policy reasons too he had he, he has gotten better and in fact the best thing i can say about joe biden politically is that he has over the course of his very long career and it's been like 40 or 50 years he was elected he he was sworn into office in um january of, of 1973 um as yeah. senator from delaware the course of those years i mean he's Gosh, yeah, he's been in office longer than I've been alive. Um, Uh, Yes. uh, He is really, he's really evolved, which is a good thing, because where he started was no good. If you care about the things I care about, he was, you know, the issues around busing and policing and the, and the, um, uh, you know the crime bill in the Clinton administration issues, of... and he had a
0: lot police. to make up for with the Anita Hill thing. He had, you know, he was that in was a, of a sin. Right?
2: Hearings and really, in addition right. to permitting the totally ill treatment, uh, totally um, disrespectful ill treatment of Hill when she testified on sexual harassment, um, also didn't call the other women who were willing to testify to corroborate her claims. Right. I mean, he th- yes. those hearings were really terrible, and it was he was the one who led them. Um, So yeah, I had all those complaints. Now, as you say, what happened, and it happened very quickly, and do I have a structural complaint about it? Hell yes, I have a massive structural complaint about how we hold primaries in this country. Um, And there absolutely are structural elements. You know, a very relatively small percentage of the country actually wound up voting, and that's even before COVID has meant that so many of the elections aren't happening in full or at all in New York State. the, The primary election that was supposed to be held it was postponed till June has been officially canceled, although I don't know if that's going to stick. So, you know, the way our primary process works, first tilts things in one direction by having Iowa um, and New Hampshire, which are super white states, go first, and sort of winnow out a whole bunch of candidates based on the preferences of these white electorates, you know, which is not representative of the Democratic base. And then once a series of those candidates kind of got winnowed out, Then you had, because Bernie Sanders was leading, you had a pretty um, anxious uh, sort of mainstream Democratic effort to to coalesce around another candidate, Um, and that candidate wound up being Joe Biden. And when the primaries moved on to other states, um, Joe Biden was selected overwhelmingly by voters, and I really respect and trust that. And in fact, by voters who are much more like the Democratic Party base in that it's black voters who are a Democratic Party base chose Joe Biden. Right. And I respect that. And he's the candidate. And I have never minced words about having feminist criticism of Joe Biden. But if he is the candidate in November and I will be surprised if he's not, I don't see, you know, that barring right. him stepping down, which seems unlikely or Y- yes, I assume he'll be the candidate in November, and I will crawl over broken glass to vote for him. I will not. Uh, one of the things about voting in, the country, in this country and the way our system works, and I have done this before almost every time I have voted in my life, um, you're, I am going to vote for the candidate who better represents not just my interests, but, but the country's interests.
0: There are columns out there right now um, suggesting that, you know, Joe Biden could be, you know, sidelined by this Tara Reid um, incident or a claim. And I'm just curious, like, you know, I know you've analyzed, I'm sure you've analyzed very closely um, the facts in the Tara Reid case. We're all trying to figure out it's a he said, Uh, she said thing mm that, you know, there are there are facts on both sides of the ledger. But do you believe her?
2: Uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not a believe women person, first of all. Um, no. I, that's not a phrase that has ever resonated for me. Um, I, there are plenty of, I, I, I just, A, I think there, it is often used by anti-feminists to sort of characterize, mischaracterize a feminist movement as being about believing all women. Now, I also know that there are feminists who use that phrase and they use it, um, you know, I'm sure in generally well-intentioned ways. I am not somebody who believes all women. I don't think it's a good idea to move forward with a mantra that's believe all women. There is a huge history in this country of women lying specifically about sexual harassment and assault as a predicate for racial violence. I mean, uh, this is a lot of the history of of claims of sexual violence made by white women in a Jim Crow South and since um, to justify violence done um, to falsely accused black men. There is a long history of this. And then even even in addition to that history, it is absolutely not inconceivable that a woman might lie. I do think we need to take women seriously. I mean, if I had a tagline, and I don't I don't run toward taglines generally, but if I had one, it would probably yeah. be, take women seriously. Listen to them. Right. Um, I think in the context of healthcare, often I go with trust women, but that's too close to believe women and right. when it's taken into the context of harassment it gets muddy too muddy for me
0: do you have a gut feeling about her
2: uh no i'm reading everything i've gone back and forth i mean to say i don't have a gut feeling yeah i've had gut feelings that have operated in both directions changing day to day i don't know that we're right. ever and and it's interesting to me that you said when you read my column you felt like uh, i was taking it seriously that is and that this is something that should be taken seriously. So that is an accurate representation of how I feel about it. I've been taking it very seriously. I've been reading the reporting on it really carefully. I've been following it. I've been trying to think about how I'm evaluating it. But um, I wrote the column not about, not to say I believe Tara Reid or I don't believe Tara Reid. I wrote the column because, to me, the reporting was growing increasingly serious, offering... Mm -hmm you know, reasons to believe either thing, Um, you know, reporting that backed up, you know, both perspectives on it. But the fact that it was growing more serious and that I was seeing women like Stacey Abrams, as you point out, Stacey Abrams. So this is, here is a person who has spent decades of her life dedicated to one of the most crucial progressive fights of our time, enfranchisement. And then she's put in this position and by the way, also as somebody who is perhaps one of the people who might be Joe Biden's running mate. She's on, you know, right. she's speculated to be on the short list, which would be a historic choice. Keep in mind, we've only ever had two women nominated for the vice presidency by a major party in this country. And we've and never a black woman. So uh, this is she's in this historic, crucial juncture where part and she's been open about wanting the job. That's and right. but the the sort of thing she has to pass through is being asked to do this evaluation of a claim that nobody actually has enough information about to know how to feel.
0: Right. Well see, the- that's where I have a little bit of a, I, I was a little bit dubious about this. I mean, in your column, you say, You know, the fact should be that it is better to have the right voice at Biden's side than no voice there at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. are sort of you're skeptical. Don't pick a centrist who doesn't have a great record um, with feminist um, issues. But right. But if you say, but if we get that progressive voice, she will immediately be damaged by her association with the nominee. And now damaged by the unknown speculation about whether this is true or not. Right. I mean, right. We, how is she damaged? She's damaged because but the because the accusation is coming from Tara Reid. so why well, would he why would she be why would she be damaged by an uh, by a unresolved um, claim?
2: Well, for two reasons, I think one goes back to this issue that prior to Tara Reid and in fact, leaving him open to accusations like this being taken more seriously than if this one had just come completely out of the blue with no context, right? You have Mm -hmm. the fact that Biden does have a record that's been criticized by feminists, both on policy grounds and because of his personal behavior and attitudes toward women, right? So then when you have a potential, a, a woman, whether it's a VP candidate or not, who's being asked to sort of be affirmative about Joe Biden and women, and this is, and this, I actually think this dynamic would have come to, into play in a lower key way, um, even without a Tara Reid allegation of assault. Is that part of what part of why Biden wants to promise this to a woman is because he needs to affirm his feminist bona fides because he has a, a history of being criticized by feminists uh, for good reason, in my mind, as one of the well, feminists I, do you <laughs> so think
0: but do you think that's why he said he was going to put a female VP? And do you think that was the reason, uh, or is it because the yeah. legacy of I mean, Hillary I mean, having lost and the, and women you know feeling well, like they got?
2: It's it's all together. It's because it's it's. They all I would of, think I mean, that the it, uh,
0: the petting thing, which I, and I see that as like kind of a generational thing. It's similar to like the. You know, I yeah. talked to Chris Matthews two episodes ago, and, you know, he's apologizing. But he, with the way he was acting uh, or alleged to have acted in these different situations is like, you know, somebody who's 75 and unreconstructed. And, and you know, as you said, Joe Biden has done some work to reconstruct himself, you know, um, yeah, around certain policy issues.
2: Policy-wise, policy actually, wise. attitude-wise is where he's been slower. Because when he right. was called on this a year ago— He didn't and and people, you know, Lucy Flores wrote a very powerful essay for for my publication for The Cut about her experience with Biden as a politician just a few years ago and him smelling her hair and everything. And, and right. his reaction to this actually wasn't particularly admirable. It was not a great sign about his ability to shift in his personal attitudes toward women. There have been all these other examples of him on the trail talking to young girls and their brothers and saying to the brothers, your job is to keep the boys away from her or whatever, you know, like treating women's sexuality as something that needs to be guarded by men. It's this minor stuff. Again, in addressing this, I am not making an anti-Joe Biden argument. What I am saying is that there are all kinds of reasons that he has come in for valid feminist critique. Those patriarchal attitudes may not be in the same, they are not in the same category by any stretch as like violent assault. Or certainly, I mean, by any comparison, not just Trump, but a Republican Party that has been working its tail off for decades to reverse everything around Um, you know, every possible policy that would make women's lives better, freer and somewhere closer to equal. Right. So, but I, but yes, Joe Biden needs to shore up. It's not an accident that he said he was going to appoint a woman um, vice president and a black woman to the Supreme court. Joe Biden is playing to some degree and right. He correctly um, to a party that is in many cases driven by women, especially black women. With On a history where he his history is in part of having especially treated a black woman, Anita Hill, um, with less respect and professionalism than he should have, and also coming out of a primary that was the most diverse in terms of both gender and race that we have ever seen in the Democratic Party. And someone around him knows that as the old white man having won over um, candidates of color, over women like he had to acknowledge that just picking another white guy wasn't going to be the right solution. So yes, the promise Well, sure, to pick a he woman has to is he's an got to, to be shore he, up that stuff.
0: Well, yeah, but it, it, and I I agree, but he's also becoming the it's it's his responsibility and duty as the nominee of the party to amalgamate all the um you know the um dialogue that's been going on in you know in identity politics and all the rest of the I mean, I'm thinking about Joe. Ba- I'm thinking about Ob- Barack Obama's um, endorsement and saying, mm-hmm. if I were running now, I'd be a very different candidate. And mm-hmm. the progressive agenda that Bernie and Elizabeth brought into it, he's got to bring that in. And part of right. that has well, to should, do with, yes. uh, yeah, and he is right. I mean, I'm I'm not making big claims for Joe Biden. He's right. <laughs> he's he is a kind of uh, you know to some degree, a uh, slow moving um, creature, but, um, <laughs> but uh, um, he is adopting all of these things. So, but the, yeah. the to go back to ter- Tara, Tara for, for just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also thinking about, uh, you know, Kirsten Gill- Gillibrand um, mm-hmm. also joining this chorus of people that are yeah. siding with Biden. And so, she's so- also one who went after Al Franken. And I'm wondering, do you look back at the different cases from Kavanaugh to Al Franken and all the ones that we know about that we've examined in the press over the years. And what have we learned about where the line is like, where, how do we know how to act and to prosecute these cases in the public sphere? I mean, do you look back at Al Franken and believe that he got what he deserved?
2: It's not for me and Franken. And I've, I've written about Franken and this case, pretty um and i find it very related to the biden thing the issue for me with franken um was never like did he get what he deserved did i think it had to end with al franken leaving the senate no but i think franken made a series of choices that made it very hard for his colleagues to do anything else and this is where i see the the parallel to joe biden um because one of the things that happens and that we under we have under examined as we have learned so much in these previous years about what systemic harassment and assault, the kind of impact it has is that the the harm it does isn't just on the person who is harassed or if they bring a charge and it's not just the harm or, or repercussion isn't just on the person who is accused of harassment, right? It radiates out in multiple directions and that means both You know, if you're a person working in that office who turned a blind eye to it because you were dependent on the powerful harasser, if you were a person who was that harasser's colleague who needed that harasser's cooperation on a bill or a work project, if you were dependent on them for a raise or a paycheck, um, or that you were your friend or your husband or your boyfriend, you know, then you are, then are you, you are complicit. Are you complicit? You are, you're there's, there's some associative guilt and the damage is rubbing off on you, even if you have never actually harassed um, or been harassed. And by the same token, if you are a person in that orbit who chooses to challenge the alleged harasser, who says, actually, that's not cool, then you're going to maybe sustain damage in response. And so you can see that model. Look at Kirsten Gilbrand. In one case, so and you're asked, and especially women and feminists, especially the very people who take this seriously, are asked. Yeah. And this is both Franken and Biden; they're the ones who are asked to answer for it all the time. So, what was happening when Biden, when Franken was being accused after his first accuser um, comes out, and does, and it's the story of the USO tour and the picture, and as we now know from Jane Mayer's reporting, she was working in conjunction with um, sort of right wing media people, right?
0: Yeah, and. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, but two things: A, if she had been the only accuser, what everybody said, including Kirsten Gillibrand, after that was, "Let's have an investigation," which is what Franken said. Right. right. The problem is that then there were, I believe, seven more people who came out, sort of every two days, and they were not—they were not working with right-wing media sources, saying, "Actually, I had this experience with him. I had this experience with him." And right. so. And, and the damage that was being done wasn't just being done either to those people who had their stories or to Franken himself. It was also being exacted on the very women like Kirsten Gillibrand, whose work for years had been with regard to sexual assault in the military and on college campuses, who was being called a hypocrite all the time in the press and saying, why won't you condemn your colleague? Why won't you condemn your colleagues? Now, to my mind, I've always said this, all Franken had to do was go out and say, listen, I am listening to these accusations. This is, I didn't, I never, I never believed I walked through the world this way, but I'm hearing these women and I, I seeing a pattern and I'm, I I need to do some work. I'm stepping away from the, from the Senate for a period of two months. I'm going to, you know, talk to, talk to leaders on this issue and try to get an education. And he could have come back and given the greatest speech of his life about what he's learned about systemic harassment and it wouldn't like that's one scenario how it could have gone but he wasn't doing that he was keeping mom and that was landing on his female colleagues who were then put in a terrible position leading up to an election in alabama where the the right wing was trying to say as they have been saying about people in this instance with regard to biden leading up to a presidential election oh look you're hypocrites you won't condemn it in your own party and so they were in a bad position, and what they decided to do was call on him to resign, which was – and for me, given the choices that were made primarily by Al Franken himself in the wake of these accusations, they came to a conclusion about what to do that I felt was very valid. But that's not the same thing as saying, oh, Franken got what he deserved. I would have also been very happy if Franken – more happy, because there would have been less damage done to, more, to fewer people, right – If Franken had taken responsibility and said, you know what, this is on me, I'm going to do the work, and that work doesn't have to be quitting. It can be stepping aside, actually thinking about these issues, coming back and talking about them at length, and then being back in the Senate. Great, that would have been terrific, but that would have been up to Franken. By the same token, right now, all these women, Stacey Abrams, Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, Gretchen Whitmer, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, these women are being asked to either—and it's a terrible position— You call it the uh, poison
0: chalice, right?
2: Yes. Whether they want to be a vice president or not, it's also NARAL, Planned Parenthood. These people who, because they are so invested in fighting against what Trump and his party are doing to the issues that they care about, must necessarily be on the side of the candidate who the voters have chosen. To be the candidate, so so they're in a position where they kind of have to defend Biden, but in doing so, then if they defend him and say he's you know actually I see him as a good you know partner to women or whatever, then they are leaving themselves open to being called hypocrites.
0: But what is this? so therefore you're sort of putting it on um, Biden, uh, you know? oh yes. Thinking back, thinking back to Al Franken in the way he handles it, like the way he would mm-hmm. manage. Uh, the accusation. Now he can't step down for two months as the nominee of the party. No. So how might he give us a model? If you were his campaign manager, okay, I'm so or glad, communications you director. <laughs> yeah. To, what would what would he what could he have done to assuage your concern and those of people who you know share your values on the on this?
2: Okay several things. Glad you asked. Okay. First of all, when I wrote my column, he actually hadn't made any statement several days after my, so that was number one. Is he can address these things to begin to fill the vacuum where, you know, reporters aren't just calling Planned Parenthood 150 times a day to see if they have reactions. Right. So he, he went on morning Joe and, you know, he had a long conversation about it. And, you know, I think a lot of people actually found it very persuasive. Um, But the second thing, what he didn't do was that. I wish he would, I wish, because this is happening, and you saw it just this weekend, Gretchen Whitmer was, was questioned at length about this. She actually had an interesting response, too, where she said, I wish you wouldn't come to Survivors. Gretchen Whitmer is somebody who has talked about having herself right. experienced assault. She um, said, I wish this wasn't brought to Survivors all the time, which was sort of a version of something that I was talking about. But you have had all these women still question about this. I wish he would say, please stop directing your questions to my, to my female and feminist colleagues. These are questions for me. My campaign, I'm taking responsibility for addressing Tara Reid's allegations. They are this has nothing to do with my female colleagues who are out there fighting alongside me to beat Donald Trump in November. You know, I, I have nothing but respect for them and there's no reason that they should be that they should be put in a position of answering for charges that have been made against me. I wish he could say right. that in a very full throated way. That then those women could say, I'll direct you to Joe Biden who actually has asked that all questions on this matter be directed to him. Right.
0: right. So that
2: was, you want him my, to take the heat yeah. off
0: of, of these allies instead of the reverse, instead of them being used as shields, you want him to take all the pressure off them so that they don't have to advocate for him in case it's true.
2: That is the most important thing he could do right now to alleviate this kind of impossible pressure and impossible bind that, his feminist and, and progressive female colleagues are in as they are being quizzed about him because there is not a good answer for them that's going to satisfy the very people who they want to represent. And then the bigger thing I'd like him to do is actually seriously take these, these issues seriously. And that doesn't mean this is, you know, sort of, he actually, sometimes his, his reactions on this are not bad. He, he has done this, it's on us, right? I'd like this to really be on him to actually right. do this thinking about what systemic, not just the assault charge, which I, you know, he has denied very powerfully, right? It's, I don't think yeah. he's going to suddenly say, actually, I'm remembering it differently now. I think we're going to be no, left no. with a he said, she said on this. But it is also true that he's in this position to begin with and that this is sticking more than it would because he has, it's not just the stuff he's been accused of, the touching, the man, the grody old man stuff. It's the comments. Yeah. It's the, you know... He needs to think about why that's been problematic, and then give it serious attention. Stop joking about it at events.
0: So, a lot of this has to do with the way he frames it. It's the way he frames it, and the way he communicates with it. Because the truth is, is like the um, this allegation against him now, the terror read allegation. Everybody has brought the entire investigation of it to the front door of the university of Delaware and his archive there. Right. And so therefore he doesn't want to open that up because it's going to be a fishing expedition and call, you know, hands, uh, guns and ammo to Trump campaign right. to, right. You know? And so, um, you know, you're saying that that all of could have, some of this could have been prevented, um, if he had handled it different PR wise. And would that have been like, a month ago early on in it could you know i mean the truth I is, think, is, is like mean, she she built. came out a year ago yeah she came out a year ago and she was in a a position to tell this story um to the washington post a year ago when she had a chorus of other people around her there was a, it was a time when people were willing to listen and you know it instead comes a year later kind of packaged Uh, in a Bernie Sanders um, kind of frame, you know, as a political attack. Yeah, So where, where in that timeline would he have been expected to kind of get out in front of it and protect his female colleagues?
2: So I think there are two moments where he could have done it. One, again, well in advance of any assault allegation is that moment a year ago when you had all those stories of a lesser degree come out. And that was an opportunity for Biden to really grapple seriously with the gendered critique of his behavior. And he did not do so then. Had he done it then? Had he really sort of done the hard work of thinking about why his behavior was part of larger, serious structural critiques that tied to his own past policy stances, his sort of paternalistic policy approaches um, to women and their bodies, to his behavior around Anita Hill, had he ever really grappled, you know, there's this whole thing about he failed to apologize to Anita Hill for years. Remember, there's a, Anita Hill, said her family used to joke. This is a terrible story and also very funny, that for years, because Joe Biden kept saying that he would apologize to Anita Hill and he never had, the family, whenever somebody would knock on the door, somebody would say, oh, I wonder if it's Joe Biden who's coming to apologize to you, right? Like the notion that he couldn't even personally make it up to Anita Hill for years was indicative of this, and he didn't in the moment that called for it a year ago, when he could have said, look, this is after three years of intense conversation around women, power, gender. I need to really dig down and address this if I'm going to run for president. He could have, and he didn't. He turned it into a joke. That was the point one. Well, the the second point where he could have done it, and I think staved off a lot of pain and damage sustained by his female colleagues would have been probably about the time that the New York Times and the New York Post ran their investigations, which I think were, was about three or four weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Again, as you say, some of the pressure on this built up um, amongst a uh, Bernie-supporting contingent in the media, in Current Affairs, Katie Helper's podcast, The Intercept. Um, and that wasn't, at that point, accompanied by in-depth investigative reporting. But then the New York Times and the Washington Post's Post both did... Um, very lengthy um, investigations that were inconclusive. You know, it didn't leave you knowing no. exactly what to believe, but that was a moment sort of a, about a month ago that he could have said, look, this is now in the times and the post in a, in a long and serious way. Let me talk about this and say, look, I need to take responsibility for whatever happens to this investigation. Here is what I'm going to do. Please don't direct questions on this to other people besides me and my campaign. This is my responsibility. He didn't do that. And that left a lot of women and, and organizations that are engaged. And it's not just women's organizations, of course. It's a lot of progressive organizations that are being asked to, um, that have been asked in those, in these weeks to answer for them. And so far, there's, he hasn't done the thing where he said, please stop asking other people about this. So they're going to continue to be asked about right. them. Elizabeth Warren was just asked right. about it.
0: Right. Well, listen, I mean, um, I can see that. And, you know, this is all in the context of a coronavirus pandemic, um, him being stuck in a basement and not really being a good, uh, having a good communications operation to begin with in the last month. Um, yeah. He could have done that. And he probably thought in the strategy I imagine was, Uh, This hasn't risen to a level we have to deal with it yet and then we're not and then suddenly they do, (laughs) right? And then it looks like they didn't. Um, Right. Which uh, I understand. I mean, I think that you would agree that in the uh, long uh, arc of, um, you know, the justice that you are seeking and frankly myself for for, uh, women and for my daughters uh, in their future, um, that, uh, you know, Biden winning Um, this fall and not being damaged by uh, an accusation that, you know, can't be proven uh, is important. Um, And uh, you know, it's going to be a messy um, few months until November and maybe he won't exactly handle this. Right. We don't know. Um, But uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. Um,
2: I I would absolutely, I want to, I want to refine this slightly. I would absolutely 100% agree with you. That Biden, the Democratic nominee in November, it is 100% better that it is is vital that he win. The part I would refine Mm -hmm. is that I would say that I believe we are capable. I need to believe we are capable. We must become capable of understanding that it is vital that he wins and understanding that if we actually want to push for a better world, we can simultaneously articulate how crucial it is for him to win, and take critiques of him seriously, and take them seriously into what must be his administration.
0: Right. Well, and I think that, you know, when we see who he picks for his VP, when we start to see, um, you know, how his—what his administration may start to look like if he's— You know, while he's running, I think a lot of that's going to happen. You know, I mean, uh, people are already talking about whoever the VP is could end up being the president, given his age, given what we know. Um, And, you know, it may be that he's laying the groundwork for exactly the kind of thing that you want to see happen. Um, Uh, I certainly hope that's Ironically. Ironically, because uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he doesn't seem like the abs, you know, the ideal vessel for it. But he could, ironically, end up being that.
2: If he, if he is, I'll be thrilled and give him all the credit in the world.
0: Okay, well, I'll wait for that column. It'll be a fascinating <laughs> column. Um, I will also I,
2: wait for that column. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we didn't get around to talking about Mrs. America, but. I think if you, anybody who's listening, if you watch this program, it's such an interesting kind of um, addendum to your, to Rebecca Tracer's book, Good, uh, Good and Mad. It's like, uh, it'll take you kind of visually and cinematically into that world. I thought the third episode with Shirley Chisholm was like, that really got me going on the show. It's an amazing episode. Mm-hmm. And it takes you inside the kind of the DNC convention politics, which, feminists were forced to make you know to debate and to end up making a kind of decision not unlike getting behind joe biden right um right they except they were able... getting
2: behind george mcgovern
0: well they had right okay who was way left of you know at the time was the liberal <laughs> candidate right by most people's standards but um yes in oh, any absolutely. event um I, I really am grateful that you came on today. It's great to hear your voice again. It's great to debate this stuff with you and to talk about this issue um, and I urge people to check out her book and I hope that uh, we'll talk again like this soon and stay would safe be
2: really fun. Thank you so much.
0: I'd like to thank my guest Rebecca Traster and of course my fabulous co-host Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, especially Bob Tabador, our fine producer, for their work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we'll see you next week.